We are at a point in John's gospel where Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. He's there during preparations for the Passover festival. This is not the first Passover festival of Jesus' life, but it will be his last Passover. Last week we heard him announce, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Meaning, Jesus explained, glorified through his death, resurrection, and return to his Father's side. We call that his ascension. That is what is involved in this hour that will glorify Jesus. We said last week it's not a literal hour of the day. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension are seen as one event. They're one package. And Jesus refers to together as the hour or his hour. And last week we heard how this hour will glorify both Jesus and his Father. Jesus' death and its aftermath will bring life to many people. It will also bring just condemnation to those who reject Jesus. And it will glorify the Father who does all of this through Jesus. And now this morning, as we read on in John chapter 12, we're going to hear more on how God is glorified through this hour. God is glorified through both human belief and human unbelief. God glorified through belief and unbelief. Now, that is not saying it doesn't matter whether human beings believe. It matters very much for us. But in terms of God himself being glorified, John is going to tell us that happens either way, whether we believe or not. So we're going to pick up in chapter 12, verse 34. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1080, or in the larger print Bibles, 1672. And we'll read down to the end of the chapter in verse 50. Just the immediate context of this is back in verse 23. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and then Jesus spoke about his death. And now those listening to Jesus have some questions about that. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus laughed and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. 
This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is God's Word. And it is in the form of a sandwich. It begins and ends by focusing on our responsibility to believe in Jesus. That's like the two slices of bread. And in the middle of this sandwich, we learn that even human unbelief plays a part in God's sovereign purposes. Even human unbelief contributes to God's glory. But before we get to the bit in the middle, look at the first slice of bread in verses 34 to 36, which tells us belief in Jesus is our urgent responsibility. We've already noticed that in the previous verses, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and then he spoke about his death. So it's not too surprising to find a lot of hands up in the crowd. Or maybe they didn't have the patience to put their hands up. They're just shouting out their questions to Jesus. In verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The law here is the Old Testament, which speaks about both God's anointed King, His Messiah, and also about an individual called the Son of Man. There are several Old Testament passages that speak of God's Messiah having an eternal reign. 
And when the Son of Man is described in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, we're told there that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so for the crowd here, there's a problem when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, but then he speaks about his death on the cross, being lifted up. So when the crowd say, who is this Son of Man? They don't mean we've never heard of the Son of Man. They mean, Jesus, how could you be the Son of Man? if you're going to die. The Son of Man and the Messiah will remain forever. So explain yourself, Jesus. Answer this riddle for us. That's their question, but you'll notice that Jesus doesn't answer their question. What he does in verses 35 and 36 is impress on them their urgent responsibility to believe in him. It's not that the questions these people are asking are unimportant, but the issue is Jesus has given ample evidence that he is who he claims to be. That's what all the signs were about. All those miraculous signs that culminated in the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Jesus has shown the people who he is. And he has told them soon he's going to die for their salvation. So yes, they still have unanswered questions. Yes, they can't quite see how Jesus can die yet also remain forever. But the time has come to trust him. He has shown his power through the signs. He has told them his death will bring salvation. Now it's time to trust him. And let the remaining questions be answered in due course. Again, it's not that the questions are irrelevant. But at some point, the questions have to take a back seat. And we have to believe on the strength of what we know about Jesus. And that's why Jesus says in verse 35, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus laughed and hid himself from them. Jesus' withdrawal here is a way of underlining his point. In this historical situation, these people have no more time. No more of their questions will be answered at this point. Between now and his death, Jesus will spend the time that's left with his close circle of disciples. So these people in Jerusalem must believe on the strength of what they have already seen and heard from Jesus. It's time for their questions to take a back seat. Otherwise, the darkness will overtake them. They've seen and heard enough. If they don't believe now, they never will. And it's the same for you and me. Yes, when we first look into Christianity, it's all new to us. 
But once we get as far as we've got in John's gospel, it's not new to us anymore. When we get this far, we've seen enough of Jesus. We know enough of Jesus. And so whatever questions we still have, we must not hide behind our questions. By all means, let's keep on learning. There's always more to learn. But now it's time to come and believe. Then go on learning as a believer. Or in Jesus' words, believe in the light, then walk forward from here as a child of the light. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a believer, it's time. If you've been coming for any length of time, you have seen enough and you know enough of Jesus. Don't faff about with this anymore. Come and bow to him as your savior and your king. Come and glorify him through your belief. Don't be one of those who glorify him through your unbelief. Because the reality is, your belief or unbelief has massive eternal consequences for you. It matters more than anything else for you. But Jesus himself will be glorified whatever you do. You will either glorify him through your belief or through your unbelief. That is the message of verses 37 to 41. Human unbelief also plays a part in God's salvation plan. Now, there's no doubt about the urgent call Jesus has just given in verses 35 and 36. There's no doubt about Jesus' concern for the crowds. But these next verses show God will be glorified whether the crowds believe or not. Of course, that doesn't sound quite right to us. It takes a bit of explaining. Because we naturally assume unbelief is a problem for God's glory, don't we? Verse 37 sets out what seems to be a problem. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. John chapters 1 to 11 is a record of Jesus' mission to his people Israel. They have been the primary target of Jesus' signs. But by and large, they have not believed. In that sense, Jesus' mission has failed. It hasn't failed totally, of course. There are believers. And from chapter 13 on, Jesus will focus on his 12 disciples. But the large-scale rejection of Jesus seems to be an obvious problem. If Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, how can it be that so many would not believe in him? For people today, that seems like a problem. People say, you want us to believe in this man who was rejected by most of those who saw and heard him in the flesh? 
If they didn't believe, why should we? When people say that, they are assuming the cross of Jesus was a failure of God's plan. They think Jesus went to the cross because of human rejection. And of course, that's true. John's gospel is going to emphasize that. In chapter 19, Pilate will send Jesus to the cross under severe pressure from the crowds in Jerusalem. The crowd drowns out Pilate's efforts to release Jesus. They shout at Pilate, take him away, crucify him. Faced with the crowd's ferocious rejection of Jesus, Pilate hands him over to be crucified. So the New Testament makes no effort to downplay human rejection of Jesus. But it does not see that as a failure of God's plan. It tells us God's salvation comes through human unbelief. John makes that point by referring to the passage that Jane read for us earlier, Isaiah chapter 53. Here in verse 38, after mentioning the crowd's failure to believe, John says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Very often when the New Testament writers quote a verse from an Old Testament passage, they're actually directing us not just to that single verse, but to the surrounding context in the Old Testament as well. Rather than quote the whole passage, they quote a little sample of it, expecting us to either remember it or to look up the whole passage. And I'm sure that's the case here. The end of Isaiah 52 and all of 53 is about someone God refers to as my servant. The passage opens by saying the servant of God will be lifted up and highly exalted, which naturally makes us think of human adulation and acceptance of this servant. But the passage then goes in a very different direction. It goes on to describe human human rejection of this servant of God. And Isaiah asks the question, quoted here in John 12, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is his strength. God has shown his strength in the powerful deeds of his servant. He has delivered his message through his servant. But very few have believed. In fact, Isaiah goes on to say, this servant has been despised and rejected by mankind. He has become a man of suffering. A man held in low esteem by human beings. And ultimately, this servant was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was killed by human beings. But in Isaiah's prophecy, that does not mean the servant has failed. The human rejection described in Isaiah 53 actually accomplishes God's salvation. The servant's death at human hands bought forgiveness for human beings. 
No matter what his enemies thought they were doing, in heaven's great plan, God's servant died as an offering for sin. His death bought life for all who will believe. And all of that is in a passage that started with the promise of a servant being lifted up and highly exalted. And by quoting that passage here, John is telling us Jesus is the servant foretold in Isaiah. Jesus has announced that he will be lifted up. He will be glorified, and that lifting up will not be ruined by the cross. And the human rejection that led to the cross, human rejection will actually serve the glory of God. It will serve the glory of God as Jesus, lifted up on the cross, despised and rejected by mankind, pays for the transgressions of his people. Human rejection of Jesus does not mean a failure of God's plan. God's salvation comes through human unbelief. And so... Here in verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. He, in verse 40, is God. And if we've understood the point of verse 38, we realize that verses 39 and 40 must be true. If God's salvation comes through human unbelief, then of course there had to be human unbelief. If salvation was to come through Jesus being despised and rejected by mankind, then of course mankind had to despise and reject Jesus. But is that all there is to it? Can we explain human unbelief just by saying it was needed for God's plan? So tough luck for unbelieving humans. Their unbelief isn't their fault. They're just collateral damage in God's great plan. Is that what verses 39 and 40 are saying? Absolutely not. The truth is, unbelief is God's punishment on human sin. Verse 40 is quoting another key passage from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 this time. In that chapter, Isaiah is given his mission in life. His orders come direct from God's throne. He's given a vision of God on his throne. Isaiah is told he is to spend his life proclaiming God's message to Israel. But as God gives Isaiah that mission, God also tells him what the results are going to be. The result will be that Isaiah's message is rejected. Isaiah is going to preach his heart out year after year. 
And far from opening people's eyes and softening their hearts, Isaiah's proclamation of God's word will actually do the opposite. It will be used by God to close people's eyes and harden their hearts. And in the context of Isaiah, that is not because God has a sick sense of humor. It is not because God finds it enjoyable to mess with the minds and hearts of poor, innocent human beings. No, Isaiah's ministry comes in a context where people have been resisting God's word for generations. Many, many generations. Isaiah is not being sent to men and women who are pure or even neutral. He's been sent to men and women who are guilty to the core. They are bent on resisting God's word. And in that context, God says, They have chosen resistance to my word, and now they will have what they have chosen. I will blind their eyes. And harden their hearts so they cannot see or believe. This is a significant theme in the Bible. God giving people over to the sin they love. The sin they have chosen and persisted in. In spite of God's gracious, patient pleading with them to turn to him. The Bible tells us there is a point where God gives people over to the sin they have chosen. That's what Isaiah 6 is about. And by quoting that passage here in John 12, John is showing us what's going on as Jesus is rejected by the crowds. It's part of that same story. Human beings resist God's word, and at a certain point, he hardens them against his word. He gives them over to what they have chosen. As John's gospel has unfolded, we've seen him perform sign after sign, displaying who he is. We've just heard Jesus plead with these cries in Jerusalem, believe in the light while you have the light. But then we heard Jesus left and hid himself. The opportunity has ended for these unbelieving crowds. They would not believe, and now definitively they will not believe. They will be hardened in their rejection. And so, yes, God's salvation comes through human unbelief. It was God's plan that human rejection would cause the Lamb of God to be lifted up on the cross where he would die as an offering for sin. But there is no sense in which those unbelieving humans are innocent pawns in a game. No, their unbelief is God's punishment on their sin. Their unbelief serves God's plan, yes, and they are fully responsible for their sin. 
and the punishment that it brings. Just as a side note here, as we hear all this, we might wonder then what the point is in praying for people who reject Jesus. Since God is sovereign over their hearts, would praying for their salvation be working against God's plan? Not at all. We pray for God's mercy on unbelievers precisely because he is sovereign over human hearts. If he wasn't sovereign over their hearts, that would make our prayers pointless. We pray because he can help. He can change hearts. And that's why in the book of Isaiah, alongside all we've just heard about Isaiah, by God hardening human hearts as punishment for sin, alongside that, we also find in the book of Isaiah the prophet pleading with God to have mercy on hard hearts. Isaiah doesn't pray like that because he's forgotten God's sovereignty. He prays like that because he is so sure of God's sovereignty. He prays to the only one who can change hearts. And so today, we pray for our unbelieving friends and family. We pray for them so long as they're still breathing. We pray that God would have mercy on them and soften their hearts and open their eyes. Just like he had mercy on us. With our own hard hearts and blind eyes. In most of your cases, isn't it true that God's mercy came to you in response to someone's faithful prayers for you? So now we pray for God's mercy on others. That God would do for them what he in his mercy did for us. One last connection to Isaiah here in verse 41. After quoting from Isaiah 6, John says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What does that mean? When Isaiah was given his mission by God, when he saw that vision of God's throne, was Jesus standing there? Well, it's possible that's what John means, but there is no mention of the Son of God in Isaiah chapter 6. I think what John is saying is, throughout Isaiah's ministry, as he was told about the blind eyes and hard hearts of his audience, as he was given that incredible prophecy of the suffering servant of God, who would be despised and rejected by mankind, but who would bring peace and healing to mankind through his death. As Isaiah carried out that ministry and delivered that message, in a sense, he was seeing Jesus' glory long before Jesus came. Isaiah was seeing what it would mean for Jesus to be lifted up and highly exalted. It would mean he would be glorified 
through his suffering at the hands of unbelieving mankind. At the beginning, we said this passage is like a sandwich. We started with the emphasis on human responsibility. We heard an urgent call to believe. Now, in the middle, God's sovereignty was emphasized that human sin does not derail God's plan of salvation. It ends up serving God's plan. And now we come to the other side of this sandwich, the second call to believe. The first call in verses 34 to 36 was to those who didn't believe at all. The second call is different. This call comes to those who sort of believe. They're believers who won't declare themselves openly. Secret believers, we might call them. But the final section of our passage tells us secret belief falls short of real belief. But at first, it seems like verse 42 is telling us something positive. After telling us about those whose hearts were hardened, John says in verse 42, yet, or nevertheless, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So these people were attracted to Jesus and his message in some sense. But they knew that openly declaring themselves as believers in Jesus, that might cause them to be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the local meeting place of the Jews. And to be excluded from the synagogue was to lose your place in the community. You couldn't just go to another one a few streets away. To be excluded from the synagogue was really to lose your people. And for these believers, the prospect of that is too high a price. And however much you and I sympathize with the situation these people are in, John exposes the heart of these secret believers for us. He says they loved human praise more than praise from God. Ouch. But it's true. Those who truly believe in Jesus will acknowledge their faith. Because in the end, they prefer praise from God more than human praise. And so they're willing to lose face. They're willing to lose friendship. They're willing to lose all sorts of other things because as much as they care about those things, they care more about friendship with God. And true friends of God are not ashamed of Jesus. This is what Jesus was talking about earlier in chapter 12 when he said, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
We said last week, that is not about despising our life in this world. It is about preferring eternal life. When we prefer eternal life and the God who gives that life, then we will openly acknowledge our faith in Jesus. Even if we pay a price for it in this life. As we hear this, we might wonder to ourselves, well, what about Nicodemus? He's a man we meet several times in John's gospel. Wasn't he a secret believer? Well, he certainly started out that way. But he obviously didn't stay that way. By the time John is writing this gospel, Nicodemus has openly acknowledged his faith. If he hadn't, John wouldn't have known about Nicodemus' faith. At some point, Nicodemus decided to openly identify himself as a follower of Jesus, whatever the cost. Then we might say, okay, but what about the so-called secret believers we sometimes hear about in other countries, where there's severe persecution for openly acknowledging Jesus? Let's leave those people to apply these verses to their situation. Our responsibility is to apply this to our situation. Our situation where we are highly unlikely to face severe persecution for following Jesus openly. But we will probably pay some kind of price. These verses are asking us to choose which price we want to pay. The price of losing out with humans or the price of losing out with God. Where does this passage say we will lose out with God? Well, verses 44 to 50 are a short summary of Jesus' teaching in the first half of this book. But this summary is relevant to the issue of secret believers. Look at the ultimate consequence of holding back from Jesus. Down in verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. The judge is God the Father. And at the last day, those who have shied away from following Jesus' words because they love human praise, Jesus says they will be condemned. They will not get anywhere by saying on that day, well, I really quite like Jesus and what he said. I did quite want to follow him, but my friends wouldn't have liked it. My family would have made things awkward for me. My career might have suffered. I might not have been able to marry the person I wanted to marry because they don't believe in Jesus. I didn't follow, but I still did like Jesus and what he said a lot.
According to this passage, we will not receive praise from God for saying we would have followed Jesus if only it had been easier. Jesus says that will earn us condemnation from God. But the good news is, if you've been trying to be a secret believer, these verses are not the final word on your life. They're calling you to take the step of openly acknowledging Jesus. How might you do that? Tell someone that you've trusted in him to forgive your sins. Tell them that now you're going to live for Jesus with his word as your final authority. Even if it costs you. Talk to the elders about baptism. Baptism is the God-given way of openly acknowledging your faith in Jesus. It's a public declaration of your faith doesn't mean you've arrived. It doesn't mean now you're perfect. It means you are beginning a new life, trusting in Jesus as your Savior and relying on his power as you live for him as your Master and Lord, openly. Now's the time to give up being a secret sort of believer. Forget about human praise or human disapproval. Come and put all of your hope in God's only Son. Trust Him to supply all that you will need. Now is the time to do that. And our final song is a chance for us to commit to that personally. Or if we are Christians, to recommit to this, living for Jesus. So let's do that together. Let's mean these words if we're going to sing them. In Christ alone, my hope is found.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.